This reading comes from Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 26. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognised him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are an heir of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Good morning, everyone. It is great to be with you and great to be able to share with you from the Bible this morning. My name's Rob Miller and I'm a member of the Mary Creek Congregation here and also 
one of our mission partners. Um, the work that I do is to be involved with the Christian Union groups at the University of Melbourne. We have uh, a variety of groups that are seeking to minister to different kinds of students on the campus. And what we're trying to do as we do that is to help students come to faith in Jesus, to build students up in their faith, and to prepare them for serving Jesus around the world. I'm really glad to be able to tell you that that, that ministry has been able to continue despite the COVID-19 crisis. We're able to meet via Zoom and phone calls and so on. And we've continued to be able to meet with a large number of students and continue that ministry. And some great things have been happening in their lives. So thank you so much for praying for the, that ministry regularly and uh, the support that you give me to be able to do it. I really value it very much and I'm so thankful for you. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing, in fact, finishing our series on the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is an ancient statement of Christian faith. It seems to have emerged as words that a person could confess at their baptism, that is, as a way of agreeing that something is true uh, and affirming certain things about God. And so a person coming to be baptised would say, this is what I have come to believe, and they would recite the creed. Or parents bringing their baby for baptism would say, this is the faith that this child is going to be raised in. And we're now up to the last line of the creed, which says, I believe in the life everlasting. I believe in everlasting life. So we're going to think a bit this morning about what that means and why it's important. And three things, first of all, that are, I think, helpful for thinking well about what we're saying when we say we believe in the life everlasting. First of all, to understand that this is a summary term. Everlasting life or eternal life is a summary term for what the Bible says about the future, what the Bible says about what God is going to do in the future. And so there's a lot of content in this little phrase that can be unpacked. There are many equivalent terms that the Bible uses, and we can see that in Matthew chapter 19, which is one of the passages that we heard read. Because there, uh, a man approaches Jesus and he asks Jesus a question about eternal life or everlasting life. But in the course of the conversation, uh, Jesus uses a number of other kinds of terms as synonyms, as other ways of talking about eternal life. Jesus uh, speaks about the kingdom of heaven, and then he speaks about the kingdom of God. He speaks about being saved. Eternal life and salvation are terms that can be used interchangeably here. And then when Jesus is speaking to his disciples afterwards, he speaks about the uh, renewal of all things. The renewal of all things as another way of talking about eternal life. Uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, of course, we have other terms as well. Things like the new creation or new heavens and new earth or a new Jerusalem, a new city of God or the great marriage, great marriage of God and his people together forever. Or as Peter says in Acts chapter 3, uh, the time when God will restore all things. So... Talking about life everlasting is not just a way of saying, I believe that uh, our lives will go on after death. It's not a way of just saying, 
I think that there's life after death or that I have an immortal soul or something like that. It's actually a much bigger picture than that about not just about the duration of our our lives, not just about uh, how long things will last in the future, but also something about the quality of that life. It's saying, I believe there will come a time when all things are put right, when every tear will be wiped away from every face, when death will be no more. Uh, that's, That's what we mean when we're talking about everlasting life. The second helpful thing, I think, is to say that as we talk about eternal life or everlasting life in the creed, we need to relate it to the other things that are there in the creed. We don't want this statement at the end just to sort of float off on its own, but to be part of a web of belief that Christians have. So what are some of the things in the creed that we've talked about that would help shed some light on what everlasting life is about? Well, first of all, we've talked about God as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So when we say that we believe in everlasting life, we're talking about life with that God, that we believe that we'll be able to live together with God, our Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. That, that that future is a future with God, the God who made the world and the God who saved us. That's the everlasting life that we're talking about. In the Creed, we confess that Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven and that he will come back to judge the living and the dead. So when we, say, when we talk about everlasting life, we're talking about the life that will result when Jesus returns that all this will happen at the return of Jesus. It will be about the presence of Jesus with us, and it will be as a result of the judgment that he brings. When Jesus judges the whole world, when he gets rid of all every cause of evil and every spiritual power that is opposed to God, then that is the everlasting life we'll enjoy, a life free from death, a life free from evil, a life where Jesus rules. And uh, we confessed a couple of weeks ago, we heard that uh, the confession includes the belief that we believe in the resurrection of the body. And Pete talked about this the way from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the way that uh, we envisage eternal life has to be a bodily vision. It has to be about life in bodies which are imperishable and immortal. And so when we talk about life everlasting, we're not talking about something that's disembodied, but something that's very much embodied, physical, uh, in continuity with the life that we have now, uh, that we will be raised and that we will be raised imperishable. So whatever we believe about life everlasting has to have include that vision of bodily life and a bodily future. And the third thing I think that's helpful in uh, thinking about this line in the creed is that we need to fill it with content from the words of the prophets. So as we heard from Acts chapter 3, when Peter kind of sums up the good news about Jesus, uh, he talks about how Jesus was raised and how Jesus has gone into heaven. And then he speaks to the crowd also about the future, what's going to happen. And he says in Acts chapter 3 verse 21, Heaven must receive him, that is Jesus, Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So this vision of life everlasting, this vision of 
the world restored is a vision that's there in the prophets. And so in the Old Testament of the Bible, where all the books of the prophets are, is content for us for thinking about life everlasting. And so to really grasp the, the full picture of life everlasting, we need to read the prophets and understand what they have to say uh, about the future. What are they promising? And it's a very rich picture through the prophets. During the uh, winter break with the students in the Christian Union, we read through the prophet Isaiah. We called it a Bible binge, and we read a, uh, each week about 10 to 12 chapters of Isaiah. So it took us six weeks to read through the whole book, that massive prophecy. And Isaiah's picture of God's future, the, the new heavens and the new earth, is a massive picture. It has so many elements. There's so much to it. Uh, and I wish I could go into great detail about that now. But you can read Isaiah and the other prophets for yourself. And one of the things you'd be doing as you read through the prophets is just gaining that a picture of what the life everlasting means. The thing about it is the way the prophets speak is so earthy. It's so physical. It's so familiar in some ways. It's a picture of a prosperous, harmonious, peaceful world a world that's full of justice and righteousness and the knowledge of God, his glory and his presence. But it's, it's recognisable in a way. This picture of human beings gathered together to worship God is not something entirely foreign to our experience. So, for example, we read this morning from Isaiah chapter 25. Let me read to you those words again and just get a sense of the sort of vision that Isaiah has for life everlasting here. He says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all the peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces he will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. The vision is the vision of Jerusalem the, on Mount Zion as a place where all people, the people of all nations can gather. God will give them a great feast, a wonderful feast. And they'll be able to enjoy that feast together forever because God is going to destroy death. So Isaiah's picture is of death as a kind of shroud or, or sheet. Uh, try and imagine human life lived under a kind of covering of some kind that just presses down on us. And Isaiah says God is going to take that away. He's going to remove that. That death is like a, a, something that covers us, that oppresses us, and God is going to take that away. And he's going to make everything right. He's going to wipe the tears away from our faces. It's a beautiful picture, an extraordinary vision of how generous God will be. But it's a picture that is not somehow divorced from our normal experience of everyday life. We know what it is like to eat and drink and occasionally to have a feast. And Isaiah says it's going to be like that. It's going to be a feast laid on by God. And so we, we, we have a sense of what that life everlasting will be like because it's related to what our life is like now.
Okay, so that's, uh, that's what the kind of thing we're talking about when we talk about the life everlasting. Well, why do we confess it? Why is it there in the creed, though? You might say, well, it's true, but why would it be an important part of Christian confession so that it would go there in the creed and be something that someone said when they were about to be baptised? Well, let me just suggest to you some ways in which this belief in the life everlasting makes a difference to our lives now. First of all, of course, the belief in the life everlasting helps us live with hope. Uh, It's very hard to live in despair and hopelessness. More commonly, people just distract themselves. They live in denial and distraction uh, not wanting to think about death and the problem of death, not wanting to think about the, the lack of hope that we have uh, eternally. Or we invest, of course, in hopes that are more immediate, that are more achievable, uh, that are more within our grasp. But actually, this, uh, this hope that we have in life everlasting uh, actually is a hope that can sustain our lives now that can really actually help us to persevere, uh, to endure, to keep going because we know that the things we do now and the way we live now is not in vain. It actually does have a future with God. And so, uh, of course, one of the things people are experiencing right now is a struggle with hopelessness in the midst of the pandemic. And our temptation, I think, of course, is to hope that things will go back to normal, that the the horizon of our hope is, I just can't wait for things to go back to normal. Um, But actually, this belief in the life everlasting challenges us to have a a bigger and a greater hope than that, to actually be longing for something uh, superior, far superior to things just going back to the way that that it was, uh, and to live a life of hopefulness as we wait for God's kingdom, as we wait for the life everlasting. The second thing that it does is, uh, this hope helps us to avoid spiritual restlessness. And there's something that can happen in our Christian lives is that we can just have a a feeling that uh, we're not fully satisfied in our relationship with God. And I think actually want to say that this is normal and completely understandable when we think about everlasting life that we're not where we're meant to be we're not where we want to be Uh, we're not experiencing having the experience of God that we really long for either because the life everlasting is a life lived in the the very presence of God it's lived face to face with God it's a life uh, where there is nothing coming at all between us and God where we fully experience God's presence the knowledge of God, the glory of God, his blessing, and where we're made like Jesus and able to relate to God, just like his son, Jesus. So it's not surprising that we might experience a spiritual restlessness, a seeking after more. We, we do want more, and it's right that we want more. And this promise of life everlasting says that we will have that in the future when Jesus returns. But it does mean that uh, we shouldn't be people who are spiritually restless in the sense of uh, constantly searching for a greater spiritual experience now, wanting the experience of everlasting life right now. Lots of problems come from this. 
And one is a spiritual restlessness where we're just always seeking the next experience, the next technique, the next spiritual thing, uh, which will give us that full experience of God that we're yearning for. Uh, actually, if we believe in the life everlasting, then we will be able to, to put up with a certain amount of discontent and dissatisfaction in our relationship with God without a kind of striving after um, spiritual experiences uh, all the time right now. We'll be able to be content with our church. We'll be able to content with the things we experience now, even though they're not the perfection that we're seeking. Similar to that, I think uh, belief in the life everlasting helps us to be content with things in life that are less than perfect and less than ideal. Um, one of the features of modern life is that we really are striving for perfection and really want to have uh, perfect things. We want our work, experience of work, our experience of relationships, our friendships, our marriages, our holidays, our homes. We want them all to be ideal, We're striving for perfection with them. And uh, we kind of think if we just were able to find exactly the right person, if we were able to just create exactly the right home, with exactly the right appliances or whatever it might be, uh, then we would experience this sort of perfection, this ideal. And I want to say, look, it's okay to, to want things to be better. That's kind of built into us, I think. And that's part of wanting the life everlasting. But it actually, uh, belief in the life everlasting actually helps us to be content with things not being perfect now, not being ideal, uh, which is... The way, the way things have to be. We're living in a world that's a broken world and that it's full of broken people like you and me. And so we, we'll always experience life as less than perfect and less than ideal. Uh, I was just noticed recently in a headline, uh, a well-known celebrity sp spoke about her marriage, reflecting on her marriage that broke up after about 10 or more years. And uh, she said reflecting back on it, that there was always a bit of unease and unrest in the marriage. Always a bit of unease and unrest. And I was really struck by that. I don't really know anything about marriage. I don't want to criticize her in any way or her marriage in any way. But I think that it's just a very interesting comment. Uh, that actually, if we believe that the world is like this now, uh, and is not the same as the life everlasting, then we will expect, in fact, that uh, everything in, our, in life contains a bit of unease and unrest. Even the best marriages will be experiences of some unease and some unrest. And you think about it, you put two broken people together, it just, it can't be perfect. It's always, there's always going to be some difficulty and unease and unrest there. And same with any other experience in our lives. Uh, we, if we understand the brokenness and fallenness of our world, uh, that helps us to actually accept that, okay, well, th things can be good now without being perfect and we'll give thanks to God for the goodness of them. But we actually look forward to the perfection of the life everlasting. And we can live with the imperfection of things now. Another way that confessing the life everlasting helps us, I think, is that it helps us to resist idolatry and false worship. 
Idolatry is the worship of false gods. It's putting anything else in the world before God as a higher good or a higher priority than God. And so when we invest in things uh, as our primary concern, like our own security or status or prosperity or rest or experiences or family or marriage or whatever it might be, that, that's, that's idolatry. Jesus warns us about this. He warns in particular about the, the problem of trying to worship God and mammon, that is wealth. Uh, wealth is a false god, Jesus says, and we shouldn't try and worship that god alongside the true god. Well, uh, believing in the life everlasting, I think, helps us because we can focus then on the inheritance that God has for us in the future. And that will be helpful in keeping us from any of these kinds of false worship. We're less likely to worship false gods because we're not invested in things in the here and now. We're not actually trying to uh, find our highest good in the things of this world as this world currently is. We're invested in God and the future that God will give us. In, And so uh, I think this is liberating. The belief in the life everlasting liberates us from our idols, helps us to say no to worshipping those things and to experience the freedom that comes with being a worshipper of God. Well, do you believe it? Do you believe in the life everlasting? The thing that I wanted to uh, encourage you with as we thought about it this morning, is that in some sense you've already seen it. You've already seen what it's like. A movie that I've uh, been thinking about a lot and I've watched a few times uh, is called The Thin Red Line, a movie made by the American director Terence Malick in 1998. And it's a really strange film, and not too many people like it, actually. It's a, it's a three-hour-long war movie set uh, in the... Pacific War in the Second World War, uh, but it's mainly not concerned with fighting. So people who like war movies don't really like it because it's no not enough war, uh, and people who don't like war movies don't like it because it's got war in it. Um, but the, the strange thing about it is that for a three-hour-long war movie, it contains a lot of visions of beauty and glory that, that the camera seems preoccupied with capturing moments, especially from nature, that are glorious or beautiful, extraordinarily beautiful. And uh, I've called this uh, movie, you know, the most beautiful and meditative war movie ever made. Uh, Not that there's uh, really a market for that kind of thing. Uh, But it's just a really interesting thing that here you have this story which, uh, which is meant to be about, you know, men fighting this war terrible war uh, and a terrible conflict uh, but which is constantly paying attention to the beauty of the world and in fact the glory that can be seen in it and within the story there are uh, two main characters lots of different characters but two characters uh, I think are the most most important relationship in the film Uh, one is Sergeant Welsh who's the top sergeant in the, the company that's being focused on and Private Wit. And Sergeant Welsh is this kind of very hard-nosed guy who just believes, you know, in the material world, there's just this world, there's just, as he says, this rock, 
That's the way he describes this world. Uh, he thinks that uh, there's only this world and human beings just need to take care of themselves. Look after number one, uh, protect yourself, take care of yourself. That's the kind of attitude you should have since this world is just a material world. But Private Wit, on the other hand, is the one whose eyes are open to the beauty and the glory that can be seen in the world. Uh, we see him at the start, he's gone AWOL and he's living on an island uh, with the local people in the South Pacific and it's a beautiful vision of how extraordinary the world is and the way that uh, there are glimpses of glory all over the place. Uh, and so we have a number of exchanges between Sergeant Welsh and Private Wit in the film, just very short little dialogues between them, only three or four times through the movie, but they're very revealing. And in one of these, uh, what happens is that uh, Welsh confronts Wit about his attraction to the glory and to the beauty of the world. And one of the things he says to him is this, in this world, a man is nothing. In this world, a man is nothing. And there ain't no world but this one. That is Welsh's creed. And he wants wit to grasp this. He doesn't want wit to misunderstand the nature of the world. But wit's response is this. You're wrong there, Top. I've seen another world. I've seen another world. And I think this is two competing worldviews really here. One worldview just says, there's only this life, and so you better make the most of it for yourself. And the other worldview says, no, it's actually more than this life. There's more than just the physical. Uh, and actually there's, there's something that we can glimpse even now, which is a, a more glorious, much more glorious world than this one. Well, that's just kind of hinted at in that movie. But as we read the scriptures and as we read the prophets, we can see, yeah, actually, this is right. God's word alerts us to the fact that the things that we experience now, the good things that we experience in our life, point us towards the life everlasting. Because the life everlasting is this world. It is this world. But it's this world reborn. It's this world brought to perfection. It's this world healed. It's this world remade. It's this world free from sin and death and evil. It's this world if it was full of the presence and knowledge and glory of God, the power of the Spirit of God transforming all things. And so, for example, as we eat together the bread and drink the wine or the juice, we're reminded of the feast of the kingdom that God promises to us, the feast of everlasting life. That the thing that we say we believe in, we've already seen it. We've already touched it in some ways. The life everlasting, this world made right. Why don't we pray to finish up? Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to you for the promise of everlasting life. We thank you that through faith in Jesus, we can share with you in eternity together forever. We thank you for the good world that you've made. We thank you that you are going to rescue this world and bring it to perfection 
through Jesus and by the power of your Spirit. And we pray that you would help us to long for that time, that our lives today would be transformed, that we would experience freedom to serve you, freedom to be generous and kind, freedom in our lives because of our hope that we have for the life everlasting. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.